good morning, everyone. Uh, Happy New Year. I think I'll say Happy New Year because uh, I wasn't here last week. So a Happy New Year uh, to you. It is uh, a new year, uh, but as Lynette alluded to, uh, it's the same pandemic, uh, same uh, public health orders that we found out uh, on Thursday. I guess that uh, we are still not going to be able to gather in person until at least uh, February 5th. And uh, I wanted to take this, uh, this opportunity Uh, Just to remind us as a church um, who we are and what we're to be about. Uh, Our mission is that we exist to make Jesus known. And by that, uh, as a church, we don't just mean uh, we're to go out into our community and to tell people about Jesus, to spread the gospel. We are, of course. Uh, But we are also to make Jesus known to each other. We are also to seek to know Jesus more as as followers of Christ. And I say that uh, because... I think the tendency in light of just the difficulties, in light of even just these specific orders being extended is is for us either to be really, really uh, frustrated and angry, to cry injustice, and and maybe rightly so, or simply to say, you know what, Um, I'm just going to hibernate until spring. Uh, By spring, there should be uh, vaccinations in everyone's arm, or at least more people, things will be opening up. I'm going to just, uh, just hold off on my regular routines as a Christian until, uh, until things get more back to normal. And uh, in both of those cases, I would just caution us. Uh, I would say, in fact, uh, neither of those things really is what it means to be truly faithful. Because to be faithful as a Christian means to persevere through the difficulties of life and still seek to make Jesus known. Um, if you think about uh, the history of the church and through all the persecutions, through all the, the past famines and, and past fa- pandemics, if you think about the nature of the church right now in many places of the world, which is persecuted, uh, difficulty and Christian living always go hand in hand. And so there are many brothers and sisters uh, throughout the world right now who have always uh, had to fight through difficulties to gather together, to connect with each other, uh, taken risks to be able to have Bible studies. They've done whatever they can and whatever measure they can just so that they would be able to continue growing in faith and, and connecting as a church. And so uh, my encouragement to us is to do that right now. Whether it be through community groups, which I get, are on Zoom a lot of the time, and I get it. We all hate Zoom. I mean, what's not to hate? Uh, we see each other, we hear each other, but we talk over top of each other. We can't figure out the, the toggle with the audio. I mean, it, it's, not, it's not fantastic, but it is much better than nothing. And if you really think about it, uh, there are many other instances in our lives. I mean, many of us deal with Zoom for much of the day, whether it be for school or for work, and, and we're doing it even though it's difficult because it's valuable to us. Uh, we, we get a paycheck, we get a degree, whatever it is. And then when we get home at night, some of us are tempted to say, you know what, I, it, it's not worth it. I don't want to jump on Zoom to, to connect with my church because I'm, I'm tired of it. And I would just say, let's remember who we are. That we are those who, who seek to make Jesus known to each other, to bless each other, to pray for each other, to grow with each other. And so, so there are opportunities still as a church. Uh, ladies Bible study starting up this week. Community group starting up next week. A youth is starting this week. Uh, young adults are going to be doing some things. All of those are going to be different than we would like them to be. But my encouragement to us as a church is that this is not just a trial for us as a church. These are really tests of faith. Uh, on the other end of this, we are either going to see whether we drew nearer to each other and nearer to the Lord or whether 
we realized that when things really got difficult, we kind of just backed off, took our foot off the gas, and, and just waited for things to become, to become easier. So uh, I'm going to pray for us and pray that through this season, we, we are aware of, we're looking for those opportunities to still be faithful, to persevere, to bless each other, and that through that, we would, in fact, grow during this time of difficulty. So let me, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord God, I'm aware, Lord, of the frustration. I think we all share it um, for different reasons, perhaps, or in different ways. Uh, but God, I pray that, that that would not be the, the main thing in our mind or in our heart um, when we think of this season as, uh, as a church. Uh, I pray, Lord, the main thing that we would see is, is Lord, that you, you are still at work, that we do still have opportunities to connect with each other, to, to call each other up, to, to meet online, whatever it may be, and that in those, in those moments, there is still good work done, where your spirit is, is present between two people or there's opportunity for spiritual growth. And so I pray, please, I, I pray that you would give, um, give us the, the strength of character and the strength of faith, Lord, to meet this test well and to honor you in it and to bless each other in it. And I pray, Lord, that through this, uh, we would see you doing amazing work in our community and in our lives, and that we would see that it's, it's together, Lord, um, where you do your greatest work, where we can bless each other and, uh, and help each other. So, so, Lord, bless us as a church and lead us through this time uh, in a faithful way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you've uh, probably already guessed, uh, we are in a new sermon series. We're starting a new sermon series today uh, in the book of Esther called Hidden God. I can see the great uh, mural that's uh, been painted. Thank you to the ladies who did that all this week. Uh, the book itself, Esther, is found in the Old Testament. Uh, it's right before uh, the book of Job. And so uh, if you're not familiar with it, I'd really encourage you, just look through your index, index uh, find it. It's a short little book. It's actually, you could think of it like a short story. That's written about 2,500 years ago, uh, written or set in the uh, Persian Empire, and that's right on the uh, border of Iran and Iraq today. So that's kind of where this takes place. Uh, we aren't really sure who wrote the book, but the details themselves are historically accurate, and the narrator begins, uh, as any good narrator should, by setting the stage. So this isn't this isn't a fictional short story. This is a historical short story of people who actually lived and actually did these things, uh, but it's told in, in a short form. And uh, I'd like to begin just by reading the first couple of verses, then we're going to get some historical context and then work our way through chapter one today. Uh, so here's verses one and two. Here's how it begins. <clears throat> now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces... In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Now we're going to show you a map um, so you can get a real sense of the grandeur of the Persian Empire. You can see, just like it said in our text, it stretched all the way from India to Africa. Uh, it was there for a couple of hundred years as an empire. Uh, you can see the red arrow there <clears throat> pointing to the city of Susa. That's the one mentioned in the text. That was one of the capitals. They had a number of them. Uh, but the other thing you can see is that uh, it says Babylonia there. That, uh, in fact, this used to be the Babylonian Empire. In fact, the connection between uh, sort of Jerusalem and God's people and the Persian Empire is that uh, hundreds or of years earlier, in 587 BC, uh, the, the people of God were conquered by Babylon. 
And so uh, the Babylonians came in, uh, laid siege to Jerusalem. They conquered it, and then they took away with them uh, thousands of Jews. Most of God's people were brought into exile in Babylon. And then, of course, after a little while, Babylon got conquered by Persia. It's always the way it happens. And so now, at the reading of Esther, uh, Esther and all the other Jews, they are in exile uh, in Persia. They are now being ruled by the Persian Empire. And for us to really understand the story of Esther, we need to understand what it was like for them to live as exiles in Persia. Uh, it, was, it was a difficult, uh, dangerous, precarious situation for them to be in. <clears throat> for one thing, they were the minority. For another thing, uh, they, weren't, they weren't exactly slaves, but they were pretty close to it. I mean, they were a conquered people. Um, they had been brought there by the Babylonians to serve their empire. And now, really, their job was to serve the, the Persian Empire. Um, Jews could be killed for pretty much any reason. Uh, their land and their property could be seized for pretty much any reason at any moment. Uh, they didn't have citizenship. They didn't have any legal status or standing at all in, in the kingdom. So it was a very, again, precarious situation. However, if they kind of kept their heads down and they kept their mouths shut and they just kind of, uh, kind of lived uh, and, and tried to make a life for themselves, they could actually put together some sort of a life. They could start a business. They could have a family. They could, you know, own some land. And while that seems like a really good thing, in fact, um, that was one of the, maybe the challenges uh, for the Jews living in Persia. It was the challenge of how to live faithfully as one of God's people in a foreign land. I mean, I mean how to live and believe that God was still with them, that they were still God's people, that God was still working in their lives when all around them, I mean, they hadn't heard from God in a long time. See, we often think that everyone in, in the Bible lived in a world that was filled with miracles and the supernatural. I mean, there's angels appearing all the time. God spoke from the heavens and there was always some sort of amazing thing happening. And, and that, it, that was true for much of the time. It is true still today. But in fact, there's a spectrum uh, of God's activity when you look through the different books of the Old Testament. I mean, there's some parts where God's activity is overt. I mean, it's unmistakable. Uh, books like Genesis and Exodus uh, that the women are going to be studying, right? God parting the Red Sea. That's, I mean, people talk about that. That's an amazing display of power. Through the history books, God intervenes in a lot of the battles to, to win them in a supernatural way. Even with the prophets, God does amazing, miraculous things. And the whole time, really what God is, is saying is, look, I am God. I am the most powerful. There's other idols, other gods, but they are not the ones who are going to carry you through. They are not the ones who have real power. You should follow me. You should trust in me. You should hope in me. But there are other stories in the Old Testament, times where God is at work, but in much more subtle ways. I think there of like the story of Joseph, where God is clearly at work, but it's not always obvious exactly how he is working. The story of Ruth, where God is kind of working out events uh, for, for, for the good of his people, but it's not so clear. Then there's one book where it's not just um, difficult to see God. I mean, God is not there at all. It doesn't seem to be there. And that's the book of Esther. See, in the book of Esther, you won't find one mention of God, of angels, of, of prophecies. I mean, no one really even prays in the book of Esther. It seems like a barren wasteland of spiritual activity. And at this point, like at the telling of this tale, 
It's been over 100 years since people have really heard from God or seen a, a powerful manifestation of God. That's the world that Esther and her fellow Jews uh, live in. And it was a world very much, if you think about it, it's a lot like our world. I mean, for those of us who have, have faith, who are following God, following Jesus, I mean, we, we believe in the God of the Bible. Uh, we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the things that actually happened here in the Bible. We just celebrated the miraculous birth of Jesus at Christmas. In a couple months, we're going to remember and celebrate the death and then miraculous resurrection of Jesus. Um, we believe, we know of all of the amazing things that Jesus did when he was here on earth. But it's hard sometimes to believe that God is still working in those ways or is still the same God because as we look around, we, we don't see those things happening very often. And so it's hard to live a life of faith when God seems hidden, when he seems very quiet, especially when the world around us is, is not quiet at all. I mean, the world around us is, um, is vying for our attention. It's showing us all the time, right? Every, every, every screen that we look at has advertisements trying to tell us, look, this is, this is what you need to hope in. This is what will bring you comfort and security. And not only advertisements, but we see it in the lifestyles of people around us. They seem to be doing really well. So there's a temptation to simply give in to the dominant culture. That, that was true for the Persians, or sorry, for the Jews back in Persia. And, and it's true for us today. The other thing interesting uh, about the history of this moment is that these Jews uh, were not all of the Jews at the time. Uh, about 60 years earlier, uh, the, the uh, king at the time, King Cyrus, he had said to the Jews, this is under the leadership of Ezra, look, you can, you can go back to Jerusalem if you want. You can go back, you can rebuild your temple. And so thousands of Jews went back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. But there were a bunch of Jewish people who said, hmm, you know what, I think I'm going to stay here in Persia. I think I got a pretty good thing going. In a sense, you could think that the keeners left. Those who were really faithful left and, and the other ones remained. And so their temptation to give in would have been even more poignant, even, even stronger. And so they were feeling, I think, like we sometimes feel, which is, man, what's the point exactly of trying to follow God when things don't seem to be working out the way that I thought they would? when we're disappointed, even though we've been praying so hard and, and working so hard to do things God's way and then things tend to fall apart? Why do we keep doing that, especially when we look around us and everyone in the world, they seem to be doing fine? See, it's these kinds of questions that the book of Esther is really seeking to answer. How do we be faithful at a time and in a place when God seems very hidden? How do we be faithful to the biblical convictions that we have and, and to the hopes that we see in Scripture? Well, that's what we're going to see throughout the story. But even, even here, in the first chapter, God is already going to um, open our eyes to see the, the truth about faith itself and the nature of the world. So with all that as kind of a, a preamble, uh, we're going to get into the chapter itself. I'm going to read kind of sections at a time, make some comments, and at the end we'll have uh, some lessons to apply for our lives. So here's verse 2 to 5 again. Um, here's how the story continues. In those days... When King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, 
while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now the narrator, I think purposefully here, emphasizes the ostentatious nature of the king and the kingdom. I mean, there's a party for 180 days. That's like month after month of feasting and partying for all the noblemen. And then there's an after party from that party. And the after party is seven days for everyone there in the, in the capital city. And the passage then goes on to describe the luxury of this palace where they're having uh, this party. So look here at the details. Here's verse six. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, and mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now that, that is a palace. I mean, that is opulent. Just think couches made of gold and silver. I'm not sure how comfortable they are, but they're very ornate, very beautiful. Just imagine uh, reading this back in ancient times, or hearing about what was in the king's palace. I mean, for most people at this point in time, they lived in a hut made of earth and stone. They had one change of clothes. Uh, they were happy if they had one animal to kind of sustain them. I mean, this, this is mind-blowing, this display of wealth. Uh, it kind of reminds me, I'm not sure if uh, you remember this show, but when I was a kid, there was a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And uh, there was this British guy who would take you on tours of all these mansions. And he would say, look at the, look at the mansion on the waterfront with the private yacht moored. And, and he would describe all the things that were present. The private uh, chef who would cook them up on, by the beachside and the pool for their dog. And they would just talk about all these amazing mansions. And I would just sit there transfixed. Thinking, man, that's so crazy. I mean, we still do that to this day. We have shows like MTV Cribs. We have Architectural Digest. We, we love to see all the things that, that wealth can buy and that wealth can build. And yet I think there's a part of us that when we see things like that, we're not just captivated, we're, we're a little put off. I mean, it, on one level, it's just, I mean, it's disgusting to us. If you think about that amount of wealth being spent on so few people, I mean, even today we look and we hear some things of how celebrity lifestyles and we think, man, do you really need like a pool for your dog? Do you really need like all of, all of these things? And that's really part of what the narrator is trying to do here. The narrator is, it wants us to see the over-the-top nature of the palace and associate it with the power structure of Persia itself. And there's a key phrase here that highlights not just the luxurious tastes of this king, but also his desire for control. So look here at verse 8. Verse 8 said that the drinking was according to this edict. So this command from the king. There is no compulsion, he says. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Now, if you need a royal decree to tell people that they can drink however they want at your party, I think we can say you're a control freak. 
right? This is this king, King Ahasuerus. Uh, his Greek name is King Xerxes. If you've run across him in history, this is this king, full of himself, full of his power. He wants to control everyone and everything. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine showing up to a dinner party and someone hands you a little note card and says, well, here are the rules for our party. Here's how it's going to go. Just so you know, conversations from this time to this time, you can eat this much, drink this much. You would, you would afterwards say to the person you came with, man, that, that person needs to ease up, right? That you need to relax. What we really see though here, the interesting thing is that despite all of the king's apparent power, really what we're going to see is that he can't actually control all that he wants to. This, this big facade of greatness and, and royal control actually breaks down. And it breaks down in a very personal way. So let's look at verse, uh, verses 10 to 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was married with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But the Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So not surprisingly, uh, King Ahasuerus treats his wife Vashti like just another beautiful thing that he owns. His request is offensive. It's insulting. It's contrary to Persian custom. And, and if you think about it, it kind of goes against the whole ethos of this party. Right? He invited everyone to say, look, there's, there's freedom to do whatever you would like um, unless you're my queen and then I want you to do exactly what I say. But see, the king doesn't really care that he's being inconsistent or cruel. The king only cares that he's in charge. And he expects everyone to obey him in, in every way. But notice, notice it's really the king's inability to control everything that is the focus of this scene. I mean, the narrator has crafted this in such a way that the, the power of the king, we were led into it with this grand display of wealth and power. He's the most powerful person on the planet massive military army. I mean, we were told in particular from India all the way to Africa, this is the kind of power that this man wields. The party itself was given to show the riches of his royal glory, the splendor and pomp of his greatness. And yet this entire perfect party and this powerful man, this powerful empire is brought to a screeching halt by one woman who says no. So the narrator makes sure that we see that all the, the power that um, he leads with. He sends seven eunuchs, seven big, strong men to go to Queen Vashti to bring her back. Uh, it seems clear that we're meant to imagine the moment when they come back without her. You could just imagine the king. Where's Vashti? Where is my wife in all her beauty? Come, show yourself. And the eunuch saying, um... Yeah, your splendiferousness, there's just been a bit of a problem. What, is she getting more beautiful to come? Quickly, come, Vashti. No, um, it's just that uh, she has refused. And at that, the king erupts, right? The, the text says he gets enraged. He's so angry. Why? Not just because she refuses him, but because he looks like a fool in front of the entire party. But that's actually just the beginning of his foolishness. Because look now at how he responds. This really reveals to us the character of this king. Verses 13 to 15. Then the king said to the wise men, 
who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure, toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being uh, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. Here's what he says. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Hashuerus delivered by the eunuchs. So the king's response to this problem with his wife is to call together all of his top political and legal advisors to form a committee to decide what to do. Just as an aside uh, to any of the husbands watching, um, I hope you see this is not a very wise move. This is not a good approach. Like if you're having a, a problem with your wife, it's not a good idea to call together all your friends, right? Have a Zoom call, figure out, what should we do? How should I respond to this? It's not going to go well. What you should do is you, you need to talk to your wife. Or if you're the king, you need to send someone to, to find out what the problem is. You're not just supposed to try to steamroll over things and you're not supposed to go to a committee. But the king is not wise. He's full of himself. He's drunk not just with wine, but he's drunk with power. He makes this a matter of civil disobedience. And what they come to just reveals even more that, that these men are fools. Um, I'm going to read the last bit of our passage, verse 16 to 22. Here's what happens. Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king, not surprisingly, and the princes. And the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Now this, uh, to put it mildly, is completely ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's shown to be ridiculous. Just think about what's being said here. There, there will be royal messengers sent out all the way from India to Africa, and in villages in the whole uh, region of Persia, there'll be people nailing up little edicts from the king, which will basically say, wives, obey your husband. I mean, just think about this. Think of the ironies that are present here. For one thing, the officials were worried about what everyone would say when they heard about the queen's refusal. And their response was then to tell everyone what happened there on that day in the palace to send a royal edict to tell them, here's, here's what happened. That in of itself isn't so bright. But also, Queen Vashti refused to appear before the, the king. And so their immediate response is, Queen Vashti can never appear before the king. It's like a teenager stomping off to his room, slamming the door, and the parents say, you go to your room after they've gone. It, it reveals the kind of foolishness of the parent. But the real issue here 
is that Queen Vashti would not obey royal decree. And their answer, the wisest of Persia, their answer is then to write a new royal decree telling all of the wives of the entire kingdom to respect their husbands. Is there anything more pathetic than a king who, who has an issue with his wife and then his answer is to command all the other wives in the kingdom how to behave? Do you see what we're being shown here? The narrator is, is revealing these things to us, telling the story in such a way so that we would see very clearly this great kingdom is, is really not so great. And this powerful man, supposedly the wise ruler, is really not so wise. And yet, and yet the reality of the situation is still very cruel. I mean, Vashti is now banned from her position. She's been, all of her privilege has been taken away. Um, everything's been taken away from her. Her future, her safety is very uncertain. And that, that was the reality of the time. That everything could be taken away from anyone in the kingdom of Persia at a moment's notice simply because the king decreed it. Like all empires of the ancient world, it was a cold and heartless kingdom ruled by a corrupt king who was intoxicated by his own wealth and his own power. And sadly, wealth and power continue to corrupt our world today. I mean, the powerful continue to accumulate things and control people. The weak are taken advantage of. And one of the worst things about it is that most of the time, we don't really see this corruption for what it is. Because most of the time, we are distracted by the splendor, by the greatness of the wealth and power that is around us. I mean, that's why the king threw the party, right? To, to show, to boast of his greatness. And that's why everyone wanted to be there, to get a taste of his greatness. I mean, that, that second feast, the Feast of Seven Days, was for all great and small. So there were probably some of the Jews that were able to be there to get on the other side of the palace wall and they would have been thinking, this, this is the life. This is what I've been waiting for. For so many years, they've been hearing all of the excitement, uh, hearing Tales told of all the, the massive banqueting feasts and all the food there. And they thought, man, if I could just get in the palace, that's, that's what I really need. If I could just get more of what this, this Persian culture has to offer, then I would be set. Then I would be content. So we need to be honest that this kind of temptation, this kind of thinking is, is true for us as well today. There's an incredible temptation, even for those of us who seek to follow the Lord, for us to mold our life and our thinking, our hopes and dreams after the people in this world that are living a lifestyle like this. It's very intoxicating. Even though we know it has nothing to do with God, even though we can see that, that the world, that the people in these kinds of positions, we know that they aren't really in control. They aren't really as content as they pretend to be. We know that the things of this world will pass away, and yet, it's difficult to resist thinking and, and dreaming that way. Especially when, when things don't go well here. Especially when we've been trying to live a life of faith and things tend to fall apart. Especially when we're disappointed. When life gets hard as, as a person of faith, we look around and the world seems to have it easy. I'm not sure about you, but there have definitely been times in my life when this has been very tempting. For Don and I, um, after uh, a few years in ministry, there were definitely some times where we thought to ourselves, you know what, it, man, it'd be so much easier just for me to go back to teaching. I mean, I know what that life looks like. It's a good life, simple life, 
And that, that would be better because right now, the way we're going, it just seems harder and harder and harder. That's always the way for us as people of faith that it's going to get more difficult and the temptation is to turn back and go the other way. So, so what, what help do we get then in this particular passage of Scripture? I mean, it seems very clear that the narrator subtly is revealing to us some of the tensions that exist for the people in Persia at the time and is wanting for us to see through some of the, some of the apparent greatness of this, of this kingdom. But what help does Esther give us to remain faithful and to see things clearly? See, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is, is breathed out by God. All scripture is profitable for us, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So whenever we're reading the Bible, we should be thinking and praying, okay, Lord, what do you have in here for me? How are you going to bless me and shape me today? And so that, with that kind of mindset, we're going to look at this chapter and we're going to see, I see at least three lessons here for us in terms of how we can remain faithful uh, in light of the, the potential uh, temptations of the world. So three lessons from Esther chapter one. Uh, here's the first one. We shouldn't take the power and the glory of the world too seriously. We shouldn't take the, the power and the glory of the world too seriously. I think it's pretty clear that we are meant to see through the luxurious facade uh, of this amazing Persian kingdom to see the pettiness and the weakness of the most powerful man on the planet. I mean, this would be helpful. This would have been helpful, I think, for the Jews at the time. If they were to read this, it would have been like a friend of theirs kind of shaking them and saying, snap out of it, look, look. I mean, yes, yes, there's power and wealth, I mean, these people are morons. They're, they're foolish. They don't really know. There's no, there's no real character. There's no real dignity here. Look and see it for what it really is. We need to be able to do this for us to live faithfully in this world. We need to be able to uh, highlight the inconsistencies and the ironies that we see in the world around us. And we also need to a time to be able to laugh at them. That's what satire, why it's so helpful. I don't mean laugh in a mean-spirited way. I mean in a truth-revealing way. Uh, one example from this, this week that, that put a smile on my face. Um, I was listening to a podcast called Planet Money, which is about economics and, and money. And, um, and they were telling uh, some stories about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is this computer-generated currency that um, I don't really understand. But uh, it's shot up in price this year. It went from being worth almost nothing to worth thousands of dollars per Bitcoin. And so they were telling the stories of those people who had bought Bitcoin like years before. And they had put it on a, on a computer hard drive somewhere. Now they were scrambling to try to find it. There's this one guy who was sure he had a Bitcoin on a hard drive in his attic. And so he was up there rummaging around trying to find it. He fired it up. No Bitcoin. Oh, totally disappointed. There's another guy, though, uh, in the UK who knew he had a lot of Bitcoin on this hard drive, but remembered that he had taken um, the hard drive out of his computer and put a new one in, and then he put it in the trash. And then that was taken to the dump and there's this interview of him and he's looking at this landfill. He kind of traced where it could be and he's like, there is somewhere in this landfill my computer hard drive and the Bitcoin on there is worth seven and a half million dollars. He was devastated. Devastated, but I have to admit, I, I was, I, I was kind of smiling <laughs> just because it's kind of funny. This poor guy is there looking at all this garbage, like somewhere in there. You have to be able to see, look, if... If your hopes and dreams are that easily lost, right, that they're, maybe they're not as hopeful as you think. I mean, seriously, here's a serious uh, question. I mean, how seriously do you dream about getting more of what this world has to offer? 
because I got to admit, there's a, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I, I mean, I, as, I, as I just sit and think about what would make our lives better, there's a lot of time that's spent thinking, boy, I'd be great if we got that or if we could do this. There's not as much time as I would like spent thinking, man, if I could really grow in the way that God wants me to, or if I could receive that blessing all the more, then I would be really blessed. There's, there's this, this tension in my own heart. We should be thinking and asking ourselves, do we really see the power and wealth of this world for what it is? That it's hollow, that it's temporary, that it's actually dangerous for our soul to engage with it too much. That's the first lesson. First lesson that we see here in Esther chapter one, not to take uh, the power and glory of this world too seriously. Here's lesson number two. Lesson number two, we often have to wait to see what God is doing. Now, hopefully you noticed already that uh, God is nowhere to be found in this chapter. As I said, he's nowhere to be found in this entire book. And yet, what we do see in this chapter is is that there are pieces being moved around the board. And in time, we're going to see that those moves are very important. In fact, they bring to fruition God's plan uh, to save his people from destruction. But the events themselves are not miraculous or supernatural. In fact, if we look closely at them, though, uh, we would see that um, a lot of the events could have gone either way. Like, for example, you might wonder, like, why did, why did Vashti throw away her position with that noble but really futile gesture? I mean, the king must have asked her to do crazy stuff in the past. Why does she take this moment to stand up to him? Especially since she knows probably what's going to happen. It's not a mystery what happens when people defy the king. They're, they're quickly done away with. So why, why then? Um, why did the king make such a demanding request of his wife in the first place? I mean, I know he's the king. He can do whatever he wants, but he has a harem. He has, he has concubines. He could have asked any number of beautiful women to come and parade themselves in front of his guests. Why did he pick Vashti at that, at that moment to provoke this, this event? And why were the advisors to the king so quick to get rid of Vashti, to find a better woman? I mean, I mean, there must have been problems between the king and the queen before. They must have found ways to kind of make things work, to smooth things over. But Memucan, he, he decides, this is the time, let's get be done with Vashti. We need a new queen. See, on one level, all of those things are totally, exp- like we can explain them away. They're just people making decisions, normal life as people often do. That's just the decisions they made. But, but when we see the big story, if you know what's to come, you know that every single one of those steps was necessary to make a way for Esther to rise to a position of influence and power in the Persian Empire so that she would be in a position to save God's people. See, the point is, at that time, like like during this chapter, I don't think anyone who was a follower of God would have been saying, ah, yes, finally, God's at work. I mean, even the next chapter, when they, they send the word out, we need a new queen, I don't think many of the Jews would have been saying, finally, God's answering our prayers. No one would have associated those small, little minute movements with the activity of God. And, and yet, God was at work. God was at work for the good of his people at a time when many of God's people would have been tempted to think, look, God is hidden. He's, he's checked out. He actually was very, very involved. He was moving the pieces around to bring about the end goal that he wanted. I don't play chess very often, but my understanding is that great chess players play this way. That's how they see the board. Uh, They aren't looking at the move in the moment. They're looking 5, 10, 20 uh, moves ahead. 
So in the moment, moving like the pawn one square isn't a big deal, but by the end of the game, um, you would see, hopefully if you've win, that every move was necessary to bring about the, the win, the, the checkmate. So listen, just because God seems hidden or silent in our lives does not mean that he's absent. In fact, God has told us explicitly the opposite. If you remember the words of Jesus, before he removed himself visibly from the earth, he said this in Matthew 28, 20. He said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He meant that. It's true. Not just for the disciples back then, but for us as well. God is with us. Jesus is with us. He's not just in heaven praying for us. He's working out things. That's what Romans 8.28 says. We're going to come back to it again and again. God is working things out for our good for those who love him, which means, which means that in the way that we pray and hope, we should have a greater faithfulness. Instead of praying, Lord, we often pray this, Lord, God, please show up. Please do something. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you've gone, but I, I, come back. Work in my life. Instead of praying like that, we probably should be praying, Lord, would you give me patience to wait and see what you're already doing? Would you give me eyes of faith to see that you are at work, even though it's, I, I can't see it, I believe it's true. And I know that you are working in the different circumstances of my life to bring about my good. That's what it means to be faithful. A lot of the time, when it seems like, like God is not there, he is there, he's at work. That's the second lesson. Sometimes we have to wait to see God's plans come to fruition. Here's the third and final lesson. There is a better feast coming. There is a better feast coming. Now this we don't see uh, explicitly in our text, but in the, the bigger revelation of Scripture, we can see that there is another feast, a feast that is coming uh, when Jesus returns. And that feast is, is so much better. In fact, it makes King Ahasuerus' feast look like one of those cheap buffets, you know, where you go and you get the stale tater tots, that kind of, this, this is a much better feast. In fact, uh, in the fall, we looked at what would happen at the end. This is one of the things we noticed, that there would be something called the marriage supper of the lamb. The lamb is Jesus. He's gonna throw this party for all of the church, his bride. I wanna read to you from Revelation to see how it's described and see the contrast between that feast that is coming and the one we just saw uh, written about in Esther. So here's what it says in Revelation 19. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You can see in there a number of, of points of contrast. I mean, the bride, that, that's us, the church. Um, the bride, we, we come willingly. We make ourselves ready. There's no compulsion. There's no edict. There's no command. We come willingly into the presence of God. We're excited to be invited to this feast because at the feast, we aren't exposed to shame the way that Vashti was or was going to be. See, when we come to the feast, we reveal the grace and mercy and blessing that has been lavished upon us because the church comes clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. It's a representation of all the good that God has brought into our lives. That because Jesus went to the cross, because he took away our sins and then blessed us with his righteousness, now we are truly blessed. We are truly healed and redeemed. And this is an opportunity to come and rejoice in that 
after everything has been done. And finally, the contrast I see there is that this is all for the glory of God, not for the glory of some earthly king. See, in the end, the question for us as believers, especially at this point in our lives, essentially living in exile in a world that is not seeking to honor the Lord, the question for us is who will we follow? Who do we hope in? Who do we trust in? Is it in the conspicuous, obvious powers of the world that gleam with, with wealth and strength right now but are destined to fail? Or, or is it in the inconspicuous powers of God that, that seem hidden in the moment? Sometimes difficult to see the way in which God is at work and yet, and yet we know with eyes of faith, with the revelation of Scripture, that those powers are the ones that will carry us through the fires of judgment, that will clothe us in righteousness, that will carry us into eternity where we will experience the greatest comforts and blessings and pleasures that we can ever imagine. Those are the two things that we should have in our minds, that the, the real nature of this world and the glorious nature of heaven and the character of Christ who is leading us that way. So I'm going to close in prayer I'm going to pray that as we think about all that's been revealed here, as we go about our week, that we would be able to see clearly the inconsistencies, the disappointments that are present in the world, and yet the fact that God is not ultimately hidden. He's not absent. He's with us. And he's leading us in righteousness. Let me pray for us.